question, does Judaism believe in heaven and hell? Now, of course, um, heaven and hell are um, English words, English terms uh, used by, uh, originally by English-speaking um, Christ Christians. Uh, but does Judaism believe in that or at least believe in something similar? So the question really goes back to, do Jews believe in reward and punishment? So it is central to our belief that God rewards those that follow his commandments and punishes those that do not follow the commandments. And that's indeed one of the 13 principles of faith. Some weeks back, we did a class on the 13 principles and principle of that um, composed by Maimonides. Uh, he kind of identifies what the basic principles of Jewish faith are. And principle number 11 is that God rewards those that follow his rules and he punishes those who break his rules. So that's a central Jewish belief that we will be rewarded and punished for our actions. And this belief in reward and punishment is ba based firstly on the belief that um, it has to pay to do the right thing. Someone cannot do the right thing and then not get anything out of it. There must be some sort of payback or it must be worthwhile to do the right thing. And by contrast, it must also pay to do the wrong thing. In other words, there must be something that happens to people that do the wrong thing. Otherwise, there would be no payback. There would be no consequence for doing something right or wrong. And we have a general sense that anyone who does good should get something for it, or at least should um, get some form of payback. You do bad, you should get some form of payback. Even more so, um, Jewish philosophy tells us that central to Jewish belief is not just that God asked us to do random commandments that have no, you know, kind of just do this, do that, but that the commandments that we do have an impact. They make a difference. They make a difference to ourselves, to the world around us, to spiritual re reality, to God himself. The things we do matter. It's not just God said to do something because he asked you to do it, but it actually makes an impact. So if it makes an impact, then at some point we're going to see that impact. If it makes a positive impact because we did something good, then that will mean that we're getting a reward or we're going to see our positive impact. If it's going to make a negative impact, eventually we will face that negative impact and we will essentially be punished. So now the Torah itself, although it mentions reward and punishment many, many times, notably in this week's Parsha, the reward and punishment that the Torah mentions are all what we could call material rewards and material punishments. Torah says you do the right thing, you'll get good crops, lots of food, you'll be very wealthy, you'll be successful, healthy, peaceful, all wonderful things, but all material things that will happen if we follow the commandments. If you do not follow the commandments, the Torah also offers material punishments, famine, um, there'll be no food, Poverty, failure, sickness, war, all sorts of horrible things, but all material things that will happen if we do not follow the commandments. The Torah does not explicitly, in the five books of Moses at least, it does not explicitly mention um, any spiritual reward or punishment. <coughs> Though the Torah itself does not mention it, spiritual reward and punishment are mentioned in later books of Scripture, many times over in the later books of our prophets and the books of our writings known as the Nevi'im or Ketuvim together the Tanakh 
Other books, holy books of prophecy, do mention the concept of spiritual reward and spiritual punishment. And our oral traditions in great detail describe spiritual reward and spiritual punishment, spiritual reward for following the commandments, spiritual punishment for not following the commandments. Although nowhere in the written Torah, in the five books of Moses, does it clearly mention, although it alludes to it in a few places, it does not clearly mention spiritual reward or spiritual punishment. Now, there are a lot of reasons given for the Torah not mentioning the spiritual reward and punishment, why it only chooses to mention the material reward. Um, the Kleyakar, or classical commentary on the um, Torah, lists seven different reasons that have been given. Among them, um, Maimonides says that the goal of the material rewards and punishment is not really for reward, but simply God makes it, if you do the right thing, God makes it easier to do more good things. If you do the wrong thing, God makes it harder for you to do more good things. So the reward and punishment we get is not just payback, but it's rather you do well, God gives you more opportunity to do more good. You do bad, God takes away your opportunities to do good. Um, Rabbeinu, um, uh, the Ibn Ezra offers um, another reason, says that the material rewards and punishments are more realistic. It's hard for us to relate to spiritual rewards and punishments, and so therefore the Torah doesn't bother to tell us, but we do have it in our oral tradition. Rabbeinu Bechaya, another great Jewish uh, medieval uh, thinker, medieval thinker, says that material rewards and punishment prove not only that God is in control of the souls and what happens in afterlife, but God is actually in control of our material world. Um, so, but we definitely do believe, without a doubt, in spiritual reward and spiritual punishment, in addition to material rewards and material punishments. After all, if we believe that every person... If we believe that every person that does good is rewarded, and every person that does bad is punished, then we know in reality that there are some very good people that don't appear to get any reward. They live horrible lives, or they have horrible experiences. And we know from reality that there are some horrible people that seem to have very good lives and die peacefully in bed. So it would be very hard, while we believe in general, that generally people that do good, good things happen to them in this material world, in our own reality. And generally when people do bad, bad things happen to them. And I think we see that throughout our lives. We see that um, from other people as well. Um, however, while, we, while that tends to be the case, we know definitively that is not always the case. There are definitely good people that don't appear to get re, uh, reward in this world. And there are definitely bad people that appear to live life just fine and enjoy their lives and live it up all the way through to their deaths where they have a peaceful death. And so we couldn't, we, so if we believe that everyone without exception gets rewarded for their good and punished for their bad, we couldn't say that the material reward and punishment is all there is. There must then be spiritual reward and punishment. And then those people who, as we said, are not the norm, but those people who are bad and live a happy life, 
Well, those people who are good and have a horrible life still experience, the good people still experience reward in an afterlife, and the bad people still experience a punishment in the afterlife. So there is still payback, even if we don't actually get to see it. If you get punished appropriately in this life, does it continue into the afterlife? Sometimes that's a very good question. What impact is there between the two? So our sages actually say that punishment in this world can actually um, limit or take away from punishment in the afterlife. Reward in this world, by contrast, can also take away from reward in the afterlife. So, um, so it puts things in perspective a little bit. Uh, we do believe there is punishment and reward generally for most people in this world in addition to reward and punishment from the, in the afterlife. But some people, as we see, do not experience it. And uh, why certain people do and certain people don't, we ultimately don't know. Um, why bad people, suffer, bad people have it good and good people suffer um, is a great question. We've addressed in a previous class um, our understanding of it, uh, but again, beyond the scope of this class, but we definitely know that it is true. Yes? Is it possible that um, a person who does good, and maybe he does not have a good death, or he, does, he suffers and so forth, but it is seen not in his lifetime, but is seen through other people and other things that <coughs> happen? Well, we believe the person themselves will receive reward for the good they've done. So if they, not just others around them, so if they did, um, if they, we haven't seen them receive the reward, we definitely believe there will be reward in an afterlife. So what we've discovered so far is that Judaism believes in reward and punishment. We believe it, in it as a central belief in Judaism, as a basic belief in Judaism. There is reward and punishment in this world most of the time, but we don't always see it. Um, we definitely believe that there is also a spiritual reward and punishment in what we can call an afterlife. Now, what is the afterlife? What exactly is that? So, the afterlife is, um, which is an English term, um, we just call it the soul life of souls. The afterlife, or sometimes we call it olam haba, the world to come. Meaning, after this world, we have olam hazeh, this world, and then olam haba, the world to come. So we see ourselves in Judaism as, we are, sorry, we see ourselves naturally as bodies. In other words, I see myself as a person, I see all of you, you are all people around me, I see your face, I see what you look like, I can hear things you say, um, and my experience is all my interactions with you, the body. However, we believe that the person is actually not the body. The body is simply a machine, a very sophisticated machine, but simply a machine that we, or that I, or you, live in. So I am not my body, I am in my body. My body is a very sophisticated machine that allows me to... Um, do different things, to think, to feel, to experience, to interact with other people, but it is just a machine. I am the one that has the actual experiences. I, my conscious self, is the one that actually sees 
the machine that does the process of seeing is the eyes and the, the body and the brain. But who's the one that recognizes what I see? It's I. It's me. I am the one that hears. I am the one that um, I am the one that does things, makes decisions. I am the one that feels. Now the feelings go through the body, are processed by the body, but I am the one that feels. I am the one that understands. The brain can process information like a machine, but I understand. So there's an I behind every part of the body. And in fact, when I speak to you, although my sound waves that I'm producing are going into your ears and the language is being translated in your brain, but I am not speaking to your ears, nor am I speaking to your brain. I am speaking to you, the individual, the one that hears, the one that processes, or the one that accepts or knows what is being heard. So it is the eye, the, con um, the consciousness behind the individual, that is the real person. However, and that's the eye, that's who we really are. We call that the soul. Now this soul was around before the body existed, the soul existed first, and will continue to live even after the body falls apart. So at a certain point, our body ceases to function. We only live for a certain amount of time, and everybody is mortal. And so once our body falls apart and dies, I continue to live. I do not disappear. Except my experience is totally different. In my current state, in our current state, in our bodies, we can only, our soul is, so to speak, trapped in our body. Or I am trapped in my body. I can only see things that my eyes see. I can only hear things that my ears hear, my ears hear. I can only understand things that my brain is able to process. Feel things that my emotions are able to process. So I'm only able to um, work within my body. I have no experience of anything outside of my body. I don't I cannot hear anything outside that doesn't work with sound waves or see something that doesn't work with light, or perceive, be aware of something that my body cannot be aware of. So my soul in, this current, in our, my current state is trapped in the body, in a material world, and therefore all of our current experience is a material experience. What ha happens when we die? So now the soul is no longer trapped in the body. Now the soul is able to perceive, be aware of things, experience outside of the physical reality, outside the parameters of the physical. We are no longer trapped in our body. The soul is now a spiritual being. Now, what do we mean by a spiritual being? A spiritual being is something that has no physical parameters at all. It cannot be measured by anything physical. It doesn't take up any space. Is it in a particular frame of time, it has no physical parameters at all. What is it if it has no physical <coughs> parameters at all? Well, while we're in our current state in our body, where all of our perception is through things that our body is able to perceive, we don't actually know what a spiritual reality is like. Because we cannot experience spirituality in our current state. So we can't actually picture what spiritual existence looks like. 
Everything we picture is material, is physical. We can't picture spirituality whatsoever. So we know that it exists, because I, my soul, is spiritual. God is spiritual. But we don't have any sense of what it is like. The closest we could get to spirituality, the best we can experience spirituality, and the Jewish philosophers have always used, um, is ideas. And that's why we often refer to spiritual beings as sikhliyim, or ideas. Not that they really are ideas, but it is the closest that we can appreciate. Think of a concept. You have an idea. Where does that idea exist? Isn't it, does it take up a specific space? No. Does the idea take up a specific, in a specific time? No. In fact, I can understand the idea, and you can understand the exact same idea at the same time. We both understand the same concept, because the concept exists independent of us. In fact, if a concept is true, even before I came up with it, it was already existed. And even once I am no longer aware of it, it continues to exist outside of me. Because concepts exist in a spiritual sense. They have no physical parameters. So concepts is the only spiritual experience that we people, while in our bodies, are able to experience. Now, the soul is not a concept, and spiritual reality is not only concepts, but concepts, ideas, is the only spiritual experience that we humans are able to have while in our current human state. So it's the closest that we can get to have a sense of what spirituality actually is. Yes, Tom? You say the soul existed before we, it, it was embodied within us physically. Yes. Does that mean that the soul itself is mature and then reveals unto itself as the body ages? Or does the soul gain something and then is different after you die? It's different because you've had that experience. Every time you go through an experience, you've gotten that experience. You're now living with that experience. Yes, the soul is definitely different after you die. So you, you give me the impression that there is, for lack of another word, some kind of consciousness to that soul once you have died, yes. which is where those ideas and other things form and exist. Yes, yes. So we do exist and we are conscious and aware um, before birth and after death. Only in our, in our current state, we don't remember it because once the soul has gone into the body, it's entirely trapped by the body. And we have no awareness of anything outside of the body's experience. So does that mean that you forget everything after you leave the body? No. No, because spirit, while the material the cannot be aware of the spiritual, we believe the spiritual is aware of the material. of the material of the physical world, the physical cannot be aware of the spiritual. So we continue to exist after we die in a way that we have no sense of what it is like because we have no sense of spiritual existence. We continue to exist, but our existence after we die is the closest we have to, our, to, to kind of that sense is ideas. That's the closest sense that we have in our own reality. Although it's not ideas, but it's the best 
example that we have, because the only spiritual thing that we can relate to, our soul continues to exist and continues to experience. So we believe um, that after we, after we die, um, the soul continues to experience in a spiritual reality. And within this spiritual reality, it both goes through a process of suffering, which in Hebrew is called Gehenim. Gehenim is the term referred to um, in scripture already and by our sages uh, in great detail. Um, sometimes it's also called in scripture Sheol. Um, Sheol is another term for the same thing. It is um, a form of purgatory. Sometimes the English word used for it is hell. Not sure that what people usually think of when we think hell is really Gehenim. Of course, this experience after the soul dies, this experience is a spiritual experience. Given that it, after, after the body dies, sorry, thank you. After the body dies, the soul continues on as a spiritual reality and gets this spiritual experience called Gehenna, which is the punishment or the suffering for the negatives that it has done in this world. Now, we don't know what Gehenna is. Because we don't know what spiritual reality is like. So we cannot picture Gehenna in any way. We do know that Gehenna is not to punish us in the sense where you did something wrong, I'm going to get you back. Or you did something wrong, we're going to give you a punishment for what you did wrong. But rather, Gehenna, we're told by our sages, is a form of cleansing. In other words, in other words, you've done bad things for you to continue, for me to continue in the afterlife, in the spiritual experience. I cannot, because I have these bad experiences that I've had in my lifetime, that choices that I made, bad choices that I made, for which um, I have now a stain, so to speak, on my soul. So now I have to clean that stain. So Gehenna is a cleansing process to be able to clean that stain. Often Gehenna is referred to in scripture and by our sages um, in, and in our oral traditions as being fiery or having fire. Jewish thinkers point out that of course there is no real fire in Gehenna. Because if there would be real fire, it would not be able to impact a spiritual soul in any way. Because the soul is a spiritual being, and physical fire cannot affect a spiritual being unless it is inside the body in a physical way. But as once it's totally spiritual, the fire cannot do anything. Rather, fire is simply a metaphor. It is a metaphor for the cleansing process, just as fire um, in our reality is a metaphor for the cleansing process. In the same way, Gehenna is also a metaphor. Uh, the fires of Gehenna are, the fire is a metaphor that we are cleansed. Now, there are different processes of cleansing, we are told. There are actually seven different stages of cleansing. Um, two that are mentioned in detail, which are actually not part of Gehenna, but two stages of cleansing. One is called Chibut HaKever, which means um, literally connected to the grave. And that is where the soul has trouble even leaving the body after death. As the body is disintegrating, so the soul can no longer function through the body. 
But because of misdeeds that you have to deal with, generally the Arizal writes because of materialism, if someone was too materialistic, so then the soul has trouble moving on to a more spiritual existence and has trouble letting go of the body. Um, another um, term that's mentioned in detail in Kabbalah and described in detail is a form, a form of punishment called kaf hakela, um, which literally means the slingshot, which essentially is um, struggling from one thing to another as we had different, um, different negative experiences in this world. You have to now work back through those negative experiences so you move from stage to stage and that could be um, apparently aggravating to the soul. Again, these are all spiritual experiences that we do not have any idea of what it's actually like. Uh, yes. Does the soul suffer? Is it, ling- is it lingering? It is a is painful... Kehenim is painful. But not painful like... It's not physical pain, but it is for the spiritual soul, it is a form of pain. Now, because Gehenim is about cleansing, therefore the soul, once clean, no longer needs to remain in Gehenim. So therefore, the maximum amount of time that a soul can be in Gehenim is 12 months. Now, the soul is indeed beyond time at this point, so it doesn't really have time. However, the equivalent of our experience, it is the equivalent of 12 months. And for, but only the worst of the worst people end up 12 months in Gehenna. Most people will not spend more than 11 months in Gehenna. And for that reason, we have a tradition that when we say Kaddish for our loved ones, the Kaddish helps ease the cleansing process for the soul. And because we presume that most people do not spend more than 11 months in Gehenna, our tradition is to recite the Kaddish, for a child to recite the Kaddish for 11 months after the passing of one's loved ones. Are these just uh, relative to Jews or all people? That's a very good question. The description of afterlife in our scripture and in um, the words of our oral traditions are mostly describing what happens to Jews, but we believe that something very similar, if not the same, happens to all people, because all people have souls, and all people are responsible for their actions. So now the reward in the afterlife um, is called Gan Eden, Garden of Eden. Now this is not the same Gan Eden where Adam lived in the book of Genesis. When he was first created, God placed Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden, and that's where they ate from the Tree of Knowledge. Um, That was a physical place on earth that no longer exists, Um, but that was a place where Adam was an actual person. This experience of Gan Eden is a spiritual experience for spiritual souls, so it's not on earth at all. We humans get pleasure just as we feel pain from all sorts of different things. We can get pleasure from good food, We can get pleasure, more sophisticated forms of pleasure. Good music from good art. We could get pleasure from social company. We can even get pleasure from a brilliant idea. So we can get very materialistic forms of pleasure or more sophisticated forms of pleasure. So in the same way, just as there are material forms of pleasure and suffering... In the same way, there can also be spiritual, the spiritual soul can also experience spiritual forms of pleasure and suffering. 
doesn't need to be physically stimulating in order to enjoy it or in order for it to be painful. Um, it can also be spiritually, um, even in our own reality, we can have things that are not physically stimulating that can give us pleasure or pain. And so the soul also can get pleasure or, play or pain um, from while it's in ex its spiritual experience. So pleasure of Gan Eden, we're told, comes from the close proximity to God, which, being close to God, is ultimately the greatest form of pleasure. A pleasure, of course, that we cannot relate to while in our current state, in our physical bodies. So now, as I said, because we don't know what spiritual experience is like, we do not know at all what the pleasures of, what the suffering of Gehenna or the rewards of Gan Eden, pleasures of Gan Eden actually feel like. We have no sense of it whatsoever. Um, or in Isaiah it says, I am Morata Elohim Zulatecha. Nobody has seen it. Nobody knows what it actually feels like. We have no way to describe the experience, although we do know that it exists. We don't have any way to describe the experience. However, a metaphor that can give us some sense of what the spiritual experience could be like. You do something wrong. You realize that what you did was wrong. Now you feel terrible about what you did. Imagine that you are able to fully appreciate the entire spectrum of the negative impact of that action that you did on yourself, on others around you, on God. The horrible feeling living with what I did is unbearable. It is not a physical pain. It is, if you will, a spiritual pain that we feel from the knowledge of the harm we have caused to ourselves, to others, to our world, to God. If we experience the true impact of that negativity, of the bad we have done, it would be overwhelmingly painful. It would take a long time to work through the harm you have caused to learn to live with yourself after it. Then you can do something good. You feel really, really good about yourself, about what you've done. Imagine you are able to truly appreciate the entire spectrum of the positive impact from your actions on yourself, the good you've caused yourself, the positive impact on those around you, on our world, the positive impact you've made on God, you now live with the knowledge and the experience of the amazing good that you have done. So this gives us a small glimpse of spiritual reward and pleasure, spiritual punishment and suffering that we can relate to. But it's important to be clear, this is not what the spiritual experience of Gehenna and Gan Eden is. This is the closest we in our lives can experience of spiritual reward and punishment. We do not truly know what the spiritual experience in Gan Eden and Gehenna is. However, if we want a metaphor, the closest thing that we experience would be that experience of the great satisfaction and pleasure knowing the great impact of the good we have done and the great pain and suffering knowing the negative impact of that we have done. So who goes to Gehenna? and Gan Eden after death. Let me first take some questions. Sandy. Uh, yeah, I had a question. There's many people, um, relatives and other people who have had 
uh, have actually died. The body's died, the heart has stopped, the brain waves have stopped, and yet they've come back, uh, and they do have an experience of this light of something. Is that a spiritual experience, or is that still part of the material, the body, of the, the con you know, even though the, there's no brain waves and so forth? Good question. I don't know. Um, a, I don't have a definitive answer for how to classify out-of-body experiences. Um, they're not described in our you know, historical sources. Um, they are definitely described in great detail. A lot of research has gone into that. Um, but I don't have a definitive answer for how Judaism would see an out-of-body experience. At least. So a couple of months ago, we had a discussion about... Um, yeah. Reincarnation. Reincarnation and what happens to the soul that sometimes um, sparks of the soul, fragments of the soul spin off and, and, and have a separate existence from the rest of the soul or sometimes the soul returns to clean up what it had messed up before. Well, the soul itself doesn't return. So, so can you bring those two threads together? Um, both this, both that discussion from March and this discussion. Sure. Yeah. So the concept of Gilgul, um, rollover, sometimes mistranslated as reincarnation, means that each one of us have a mission, a purpose on life. If we don't fulfill our mission, um, which most don't entirely, then the leftover strands of the mission must be sent off to another soul to allow that other soul to um, finish up. Um, because so, every mission needs to be finished and completed, and we often are, have, our mission is built from the mistakes or the lack of completion of other souls. Um, that's separate from our own. We remain, though, um, as a spiritual soul and do not you know, continue on forever. Um, and so that's separate from our experience in the afterlife. Now, we are probably impacted, we are impacted as a soul by the... Um, by the successes or failures of others to complete our mission, because it's our mission, but uh, we still remain as a soul and experience the afterlife as described. Don? In the, what you describe as a purgatory, um, uh, I, one of the G words, how many, how many of you run by me? Say it again. Gehenna. Gehenna. <laughs> then you talk about the soul that has done negative things that is healed and you impose what seems to be a very physical world arbitrary number of the maximum it takes is 11 months or 12 months what, where, where's that coming from? Okay, so time, as I mentioned, time is only something that we have in our physical world um, the soul does not experience time Yet, there is still a sense that the soul first goes through a process. In other words, first goes through this, then reaches that. Um, we, in our world, um, translate that process into a set amount of time. So we, in our experience, do the Kaddish for 11 months, um, because in our experience, the soul is going through the process for 11 months. And that came about, was that in our scripture yes. somewhere that says yes. 11 months? And it's, our, it's our oral tradition. Yes, please. Yeah, so I just want to mention one thing. I'm not exactly sure how it fits into all this. But about a year ago, after I had been coming here for about a year, 
Um, I helped out this black preacher, and I didn't charge him anything because I felt he's a man of God, etc. And since then, he's been sending me texts about it three times a week. And basically, other than a few texts about Jesus, <laughs> most of what he's saying is exactly what you've been saying <laughs> about God is all important, about the soul, about all this stuff. And I've just been thinking about this right now. <laughs> Um, other religions that got their um, basis from Judaism probably take a lot from Judaism, although I'm sure they corrupt a lot, and I'm not in the, I don't have the expertise, having, I haven't studied them, to be able to tell you what they... I understand, or something. but just to see the same basic thing still. So, let, let me go on a little bit, I'm going to take more questions. So, everyone after death, um, except the most perfect of people, go to Gehenna, because everybody's had negative experiences in life. Um, and everyone needs to work through or be cleansed um, the negative things that they've done. Now, this would be painful um, for the soul. It's a spiritual pain, spiritual experience. Yet we should not be afraid of it. We should not be afraid of death because of Gehenna. We should be afraid of doing the wrong thing. But we shouldn't be afraid of death because of the negatives that we've done. Um, because it's what we could call a necessary experience to clean up our actions on earth. It's a, not a punishment, it's a form of cleansing. Think of someone who has a health problem and needs to go through a surgery. Now that surgery and that process of healing may be very difficult, may be very painful. Someone with cancer who has to go through um, a, uh, a healing process, which may be the treatment, may be extremely painful, yet necessary in order to be healed. So we, while yes, it may be very difficult, it is something that souls need to experience in order to go through the cleansing process, in order to be healed from the negatives that we have done. So yes, painful, but necessary. And knowing that it's necessary makes it a lot easier to experience the pain when it's, than when it's just pain for no reason or with no purpose. One... Sorry. The, the, the cleansing, okay, so other than saying Kaddish, how is the soul cleansed? So we don't know what the spiritual experience is like. Um, again, we don't know exactly what it is, but the soul goes through a process through which it cleanses. Um, the closest that we can describe is if you felt very bad about something you've done, over time you learn to live with yourself um, in spite or deal with the negatives that you've, done, that you've done. But that's all physical experiences, experiences while in our body. The soul has a totally different spiritual experience, which we don't truly know what it is. We, don't, we cannot truly describe it. We really have no idea. So even then, so the souls all, they go through a cleansing process, but then every soul after that gets to experience Gan Eben, which essentially means to be close to God. And just about every soul gets to experience it, except for the worst of the worst. But other than the worst of the worst, every soul gets to experience it. Um, the Mishnah tells us that everybody has a portion um, in the world to come, um, meaning the positive side of the world to come. And then goes on to list seven biblical figures that were so bad that they don't get a portion in the world to come. But other than them, everybody gets a portion in the world to come. Um, because everybody, even those who have done bad, have also done some good. And so if they've done some good, they get that portion. They do get the 
they do go through that experience unless they are really, really bad. And um, the, the, it says in scripture, in the book of Samuel, and our sages describe in detail, that God goes to great lengths to try to figure out ways to get every soul that he can into um, Eden, um, into um, the positive experience at the end, um, so that really almost nobody does not move further, only the worst of the worst. Um, but Gan Eden, this positive experience, is not the ultimate goal. Gan Eden itself, the experience of the soul, itself is only temporary. Because the ultimate goal, we're told, is Tchiat HaMetim, or resurrection. We believe that we are working towards a global mission, which we did a class about six months ago about, uh, we're working towards a global mission of bringing this world to spiritual perfection. And each one of us have a role as part of that mission. We're all doing part of that job. And our role here, our purpose here on earth, is in order to get us closer to that goal of, coming, of reaching the spiritual perfection. We, when we reach that sense of spiritual perfection, uh, we will reach it with the coming of Moshiach, who will usher in a new era, an era of peace, an era of goodness, an era where there is no more evil, where there is no more suffering, an era where the spiritual perfection will reflect also material perfection in our material world. At that time we are told that every person who did their part, or some of their part, did a part in bringing about this perfection, which is anyone who's done any good in their lifetime, will, um, so they've done something to bring us closer to the state of perfection, will then be brought back into a body that will be rebuilt in order that they can experience the perfect world that they have created. So that is the ultimate end, is this experience of resurrection. Now, this experience of resurrection, the ultimate end, sometimes this is referred to as Olam Haba, as the world to come. This will be a material experience within our body, similar to our current experience. Only it will be an experience where everybody who ever lived will be back. And there will be no jealousy. There will be no bad. There will be no natural suffering either. There will be, of course, no war. Everybody will recognize, openly recognize spirituality, will openly recognize God, will be able to sense spirituality and be able to sense God. Now, although we may still be in our body, such a world to our current experience appears to be full of contradictions. How can you live in a perfect world? What is that like? So it's something that we truly cannot imagine. We truly, although it will be a material, a physical experience, we truly don't know what it's like in our current experience, which is full of evil um, in our imperfect world. And so we don't know what it's like, but we do believe that it will come. And we do believe, once again, that just about everybody will get there, except for the worst of the worst. As we said, God will go to great lengths. Um, to go to great lengths to make sure that nobody um, misses out on this. So, we're going to take questions in just a moment. I know there are a lot of questions. So, so now, we do believe, we do believe in this concept of reward and punishment. Um, we believe in it because, as we said, we believe in the impact of our actions. Everything that we do it has an impact on us and the world around us. We also believe that people ultimately get what they deserve. You don't get away with doing bad things, nor do you get nothing out of doing good things. 
However, and we also believe that reward and punishment can serve for a person as an incentive to do the right thing, as a deterrent from doing the wrong thing. However, we also believe that the expectation of reward and punishment should not be our central purpose or our central drive, the reason why we are doing things. Don't follow God's commandments because you know you are going to get a reward. Do not um, be careful not to transgress God's commandments because you're afraid of punishments. Because working towards our own reward or our own punishment is very selfish and self-centered. It's about me. What's in it for me? What am I going to gain out of it? So while yes, we believe you will gain, that is not why you should do the right thing. I, the ideal reason why people should do the right thing, and we have to teach ourselves this, to do the right thing, because, not because it pays for us, but because it is the right thing to do. We should always do the right thing because that's the right thing to do, whether or not we will get paid for it. And we should keep away from doing bad, not because someone's going to punish us or because we're going to be harmed from doing bad, but because it's the wrong thing to do. And in Pirkei Avot, Ethics of Our Fathers, we say a person should always be careful not to work to do things because of reward or because of punishment, but because that is what God is telling us to do. We should never live life with ourselves at the center, with the, self, with the selfish goal of maximizing our reward and minimizing our punishment. That should not be our primary driver in life. While we believe it exists, and we believe in its impact, that should not be what drives us in our work. Rather, our main goal in life should always be to do the right thing because it's the right thing to do. And we have to teach ourselves that if it's right, we do it, regardless of reward or punishment. If it's wrong, keep away from it, regardless of reward of reward or punishment. So while we do believe in reward and punishment, both in this material world, most of the time, and in our spiritual and in our spiritual afterlife experience, which we don't actually know truly what it's like. Well, we do believe in it. We do believe in the concept of Gan Eden and Gehenna that shouldn't drive us, that shouldn't be the main reason why we do things, but rather we should be focused on doing the right thing because it is the right thing to do.